0: Continuing, please, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, as we further consider what the Lord Jesus did on the night of his betrayal, particularly in the institution or the setting up of the Lord's Supper or the communion service as we know it. There's some wonderful truth there. Great blessing there. Great blessing. We've already considered what the Lord Jesus did in keeping the Passover in Luke 22, verses 14 to 18. And what he meant when he said uh, he would not eat again until it was fulfilled in the kingdom of God. We thought of a people that were saved, sheltered by blood, people who were safe from judgment, people who would say, Christ our Passover has been sacrificed for us, people who would rejoice in a liberty that had come because they'd been set free from the slavery of sin and would rejoice in enjoying that today, right even now, today. <clears throat> so he drank it, he would keep the feast, that Passover feast, anew in a different way, a far richer way than he was keeping it there on that night of his betrayal, or in any way in which they had ever kept it before. Now in verse 19, we look at what the Lord Jesus did at the end of the the Passover. He took the symbols and he established the Lord's Supper, right? Very significant. Thinking very much of what did he do in the actual actions, picturing it in your mind, because it's so significant. It's significant to us to take the emblems this morning to take the symbols but my how significant it was to him to do it so look at what he did and listen to what he said because it's full of richness full of richness verse 19 he took bread gave thanks break it gave it to them all right now just learn to read scripture like that carefully Slowly, picturing it in your mind and just pondering the significance of each word. Don't race over things. Think about it. And he said, This is my body, which is given for you. This do or do this in remembrance of me. Likewise also the cup. So he took it in a similar fashion and he did the same thing. He blessed it or he gave thanks for it. After the supper, saying, This cup is the new testament, or the new covenant, in my blood, which is shed for you. Now that's a lot of richness there. Look how he describes the cup. The cup is the new covenant in his blood. And he says, The blood which has been shed for you. Now, to get a little more information, just go to 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians and chapter 10. Mm-hmm. And see what. There's a few things there I just want you to get. Think about that cup. Think about that loaf. All right? And Paul makes a comment here <coughs> in chapter 10. The cup of blessing. Well, look at that. Is that cup. Contains a symbol which of the blood which was shed for us. It's surely a lovely description of it, isn't it? The cup of blessing which we bless. If that cup is the seal of the new covenant, then there's a richness and fullness of blessing. No wonder it's the cup of blessing which we bless. It brought blessing to us, and we in return give blessing to God for its meaning. Is it not the communion or the fellowship of the blood of Christ the bread which we break we're breaking the bread in remembrance as a symbolic action of the sufferings of the Lord Jesus when he gave that body to the cross now in Luke 22 it's not the disciples breaking the bread it's the Lord breaking the bread and it's not the disciples blessing or giving thanks it's the Lord blessing, blessing and giving thanks very profound that very profound how must he have felt you see, he understood what that meant. He did. He understood what that breaking was going to mean. In the fullness of who he was, he grasped the, the fearful nature of the sufferings which lay ahead of him in the breaking of that body. He already knew the price of taking that body. He took the bread, symbol of his body. He knew the price of coming into the world. Oh, we sing gladly about the birth of the babe. But have you ever thought what it meant to him? to become that babe and to step down. You know, one day when heaven was filled with his praises, one day when sin was as black as could be, Jesus came forth, he left that, and he faced the other, to be born of a virgin. Dwell amongst men, my Redeemer is he. Living he loved me, dying he saved me, so on. Beautiful, isn't it? But, but him doing that is one thing. As against us doing it. That's one thing. But it's a totally different thing when he did it, knowing the significance of what he was doing and what it was going to happen when he broke it. So we say it's the cup of blessing which we bless. And then we say, <clears throat> the bread which we break, is it not the communion, the fellowship of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread or one loaf, which represents one body. We all are partakers of that one bread. You cannot drink, verse 21, you can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You can't be partakers at the Lord's table. I like that, the Lord's table. He set the table, he did. He took the symbols, but then he took the reality, he gave them the reality. We're at the Lord's table and you can't be there and then go and be a partaker in the table of devils, right? So there it is, verse 19, He took the loaf. We saw last week particularly what that meant and I've just touched it now. Now, likewise, after supper, he took the cup and says, this is the cup of the New Testament in my blood which is shed for you. And we dwelt on that beautiful thought, my body given for you, right? My blood shed for you. The beautiful Personal nature of the love of our Lord Jesus and what He was doing for each of us individually. We're here as a company to keep the remembrance feast, as it were, to keep the communion service as a group, and yet we partake of the emblems individually. Somebody doesn't stand out at the front and do it on behalf of the whole lot of us. You know, we do it one by one. And the point is this: as you take it, you you just you just as it were stare for a moment at the symbol think what it represents the body of the Lord Jesus and hear the words given for you and then you you take that that cup in your hands and you, you think of the symbol and what it represents the shedding of the blood of the Lord Jesus and we hear the words shed for you and there's something that just touches your heart the new covenant made as it were for you made with you personally. And you think to yourself, the Son of God, he loved me. And he gave himself for me. You think of the blood of the Lord Jesus and you, you think of that precious, precious blood of Jesus shed on Calvary. Shed for rebels, shed for sinners, shed for me, you see. Christianity, salvation, Everything about it is personal thing, the relationship you have with the Lord Jesus Christ and the love which He had for you as an individual. So in keeping the memory of our time of our uh, of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, there comes a as it were a reaffirmation of your personal salvation and your link with the Lord Jesus Christ and the love which he had personally for you. He loved me, and he gave himself for me. He took that body, and himself in that body, the Scripture says, he himself bare my sins in his own body, you see, on the tree. And you suddenly think, this is a wonderful time. You see, in that body, he lived that perfect, perfect life. He lived a sinless life. You... Can you imagine that? There's, there wasn't a single thought that was astray, not one. There wasn't a single word spoken that was amiss. There was not a single action done. It was not absolutely pure and correct. He lived a full life in absolute perfection, the very life which you and I could never, never live. For a moment we couldn't live it because of our sinful nature. And then he took that body in which he'd lived that life and he offered it as a sacrifice for our sins. He, as it were, went to the cross and there in the very presence of God, God took our sins and he laid on him the iniquity of us all. And he was made sin, it says, for us. He took the burden that was ours as if it were his own. And he offered his perfect spotless life as a sacrifice for the sins which were ours. He took our sin and put it on himself. And in exchange, he took his perfect righteousness, that life which he'd lived, which we had never lived and never could live, and he made it as if it were ours. You see the exchange that happened. He took what was mine, my filthy garment, my prodigal garment, My garment that smelt with sin and was stained by it and stunk of the dirty old pig pen of sin and self. And he put it on himself and he faced God and was judged because of it. Because of the sin that was mine. And in return he took a perfect robe of righteousness. And he came one day when I was saved and he said, Paul Isles, that righteousness which was mine, I'm making it as if it's yours. And I became a child of God. And you know, I was accepted in the Beloved, and I was given a holy boldness to go into the presence of God. And every time this, we remember the Lord Jesus on a Lord's Day morning, remember it again that it was for you, it was personal, it was costly, and it means so much and brings us blessing. It should bring you blessing every time you remember the Lord. Now he says more here. He says the cup is the new covenant, the new testament in my blood which is again shed for you. And it's it's as though every time we we take that cup the Lord says to us yet again "Uh, that covenant, you know, for you. As it were, I'm reaffirming the fact, I'm reassuring you that all the blessings of the new covenant are actually yours. Now, it's not just for the whole church as a group. It is personal, and the blessings that are in that covenant mm-hmm. are the blessings that are meant for you. And it's as though he, he ratifies it every time. He reassures us in, a mind, in our mind. He reaffirms. It's almost like he reseals his covenant all over again every time we come to remember him. Now, he doesn't actually do that because it was sealed once and for all. But to the, the symbol is meant to be so powerful as to convey to us afresh that all the blessings of the new covenant are actually ours individually and completely and totally. And that's why, you see, it's a cup of blessing which we bless. Of course it is. You've got the old covenant, you've got the new covenant. All right. What's a covenant, firstly? A covenant is purely a contract, a legal, binding, serious contract between two parties, all right? And in the deed that's drawn up of the covenant or of the or of the contract if you like, each party has to fulfil certain conditions so that the covenant can have its outcome. You know, you come and I say let we, we sign well, you know, we go and see Brother Allen down there, we're gonna buy a house. Well, covenant to buy. You're covenanting, covenanting to buy my house. All right. You're going to buy it from me. He's just sold you up. Well, he sold you like he sells. You know. And uh, we're in the covenant. You see, there's an agreement. Well, next Friday, uh, we're going to meet together, and I'm going to hand over to you the title deeds of the property and the keys of the property, and I'll vacate the property. You, in return, are going to hand over that million dollars and a fair slab to Alan over there as well you see the idea those are the terms of the covenant now we get to Friday and what happens you know number one we all come up and I've got I've located the premises I've got the keys in my hand and I've got the title deed and you don't cough up the million dollars you see so uh oh this covenant's not going to go anywhere it's it's getting it's broken you see it's broken because one of us didn't keep the terms of the thing you come with your million dollars and I didn't come with the keys and I didn't come with the documents to to, you know to give you title deed and I wasn't going to get out anyway Sorry, covenant is broken. Now, that's the idea of a covenant. And it is signed seriously, all right? It's witnessed to. And indeed, it can be stamped with a seal. Now, that's the idea of a covenant. Now, the covenant that God has made with us is made with us personally, sealed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to know the terms of the new covenant, They are so full of blessing that I was going to say they will blow you away if you really seriously ponder them again. You say, I know all about salvation. No, you don't, and nor do I. There's fullness of wealth and riches in the glory of our salvation that you only learn as you go on, year after year and year after year, and you think to yourself, there is no way I'll ever understand it or grasp it and all its riches. Oh Christ, he is a fountain, a deep, sweet well of love, That's it, you see. You taste it, and you feel it, and you know it, you enjoy it, you understand it, yet there's more still to come. There's breadth, there's length, there's depth, there's height, there's the exceeding riches of the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's a fullness in the glory of our salvation. Now come and look at it in Hebrews chapter 8, please. The covenant that's been made with us. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 7 first of all it says if the first covenant had been faultless there, had, there was a first covenant that God made with his people with the people of God that was the Israelites at the time the covenant had certain terms in it right? there were laws that God gave moral laws that he gave There were laws governing the actual way in which the nation was run, the society was run. There was laws regarding the sacrifices and the offerings. All of those words were written in a book, right? And then the book was read out to the people. The people heard what God wanted them to do as the terms of that first covenant. They in return said, all that the Lord has said we will do. In other words, they signed the covenant which required them to do certain things and the outcome of that covenant is God would be their God. He, they would be his people and they would be blessed, blessed, blessed day after day and living in the promised land. So God had what he would do. There were conditions that had to be kept on the part of the people who were there. They said, all that the Lord said we will do and then to seal it you know to like signing it it was a, it was we signed in blood they took the blood of the sacrifice they sprinkled it on the book the document you know in which the contract was written the covenant was written and then they sprinkled it on the people as well and the thing was solemn it was binding and it had conditions of fulfillment on both sides just like that house we were going to sell to you the other just a moment ago alright and this is what it says in verse 7 if the first covenant had been faultless in other words there was a problem with that covenant then should no place have been sought for the second so there is a covenant with a fault the first covenant there's a covenant that has got no faults in it and it's called the second covenant or the new covenant now please remember it's a new covenant Verse 8: Behold, the days come, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. It's not the old one that's sort of modified or a few extra clauses added. Please get that clear in your head. It's not a remodeling of the old covenant, it is a new covenant. Don't lose the strength of that word and description new covenant when you study covenant theology right don't do it because you can easily so i make a new covenant with the house of israel and with the house of judah now if you think that only applies to the nation of israel and not to us as gentiles just read chapter 10 and look at that and understand he's making this new covenant with the people of god This new covenant which is symbolized by the cup which we drink and the contents of that cup representing the blood. That's not just for Israel. You can never say that. This is for all the people of God. Now, he says next that it's not like the covenant, the old covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Why isn't it like it? It's not like it because, follow this please, they continued not in my covenant. In other words, they didn't keep their side of the contract of the covenant. They did not, when they said, all that the Lord has said will we do, they didn't actually continue to do it. They broke down. They failed to keep their responsibilities and to fulfill the requirements which they said they would fulfill in that covenant. So the contract for the sale of the house fell through. You get the idea? It falls through. And God says, they continued not, they broke it. I regarded them not. In other words, I also turned away from my commitment to them. Now, please understand that, you see. The first covenant was conditional. You see that? It's conditional on that obedience for God to continue in the blessing. That's the first covenant. Now look, next it's, uh, <clears throat> the next verse. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws in a book. No, no, no. I will put my laws into their mind. I'll give them a new mind. A mind that thinks in the framework of my law. That's why the Christian has a completely different framework of thinking to the mindset of the world. He won't have to go out there, the believer doesn't have to go out there and read God's book again to remind themselves of the law because it's just not in their mind. Indeed in their mind is that constant desire and is implanted the desire to think only for the Lord how to please him, to obey him and to honour him and to love him. And what's more, if that's not enough to have it in their hearts, he says, I will write in their minds, I will write them in their hearts. And in the fleshy table of the heart, not on the hard tables of stone outside to look at so that it condemns, but on the inside of the believer, there's been a changed heart, a softened heart, a broken heart, a contrite heart. And God at salvation took his finger and he wrote on that heart of yours and mine that had been washed white in the blood of the Lamb, that had been made completely new in the new birth. He wrote in your heart a love for him. He wrote in your heart a love for his law. He wrote in your mind a desire and a thought that that's what you wanted to do, was to please him and to follow him. And he wrote the thing in your heart so that your whole person was changed completely and you, have, you, have, you are a new creation with all new desires and all new feelings. And the difference is, he says, I will write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. You see the difference. It's not external in a book sprinkled by blood, it's not external in a law written on tables of stone. When God saved us, fellow believers, he never gave us a creed merely to subscribe to, a standard that we must keep and we had to reach. He took us and he made us new. He gave us that righteousness we talked about, the Lord Jesus Christ and the perfection of the life that he lived. And he took away the burden of our sin and the guilt of our sin and the shame of our sin and the punishment of our sin because his own son died and shed his precious blood. These are what these emblems are teaching us. This is what these emblems are teaching us every time we take it and reinforcing in our minds the sheer wonder of what God has done in establishing this new covenant. And he says, I will be to them a God. They shall be to me a people. And look at this in verse 11. Verse 11. They shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord? You know, this is a whole new society of changed and redeemed people who shall know me. I like the other rendering, in the, uh, and it's in the prophet as well. For all shall know me in themselves. You get it? You know somebody. Oh, do you, ever, do you know so and so anything? Oh, yeah, I sort of heard of him. Yeah, I know you mean. Then you say, do you know so-and-so? Oh, I know him. Yes, I know him well, you see. I I keep company with him. I talk to him. We're friends together. We understand each other. You know that person in yourself, if you understand. There's a personal relationship. That's the point of the New Covenant. There's a personal relationship between a sinner saved by grace and the Saviour who saved him by his grace. They shall know me in myself from the least to the greatest for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness now will you please notice I will be merciful I will be to them a God, I will put my laws in their mind, and I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and he will steal in his compassion and his pity, he will withhold the judgment which I deserve because of my unrighteousness, and he will provide for me the righteousness of another, none less than the Lord Jesus Christ, and the perfect life that he lived expressed in the the, the bread which we take, right? And their sins, look at that, their sins and their iniquities, I will remember no more. If all you get out of this morning is that verse, would you take it and write it down and read it to yourself every morning? It gives such a blessing. There's no condemnation. Is a finality about this covenant. There's a totality about this covenant. Their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. He'll never give them another thought. The soul that's washed in the blood of that lamb. The one who understands the fullness of a death that was died for him. The one who has got the glories of God's salvation. God says, I will remember your iniquities no more. Do I speak to a soul who is wallowing in guilt? Fellow believer, you don't understand the death of Christ and the blessings of the new covenant and the meaning of the shed blood. There is no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. No, I don't mean that you don't care about your sin. You're not aware of how sinful you are. You're not humbled because of how sinful you are. And you get older and you become more humbled as you realise how capable you are of sin. You realise how much evil is in there that you have to keep putting down and you think for any favour by the time I get to my age I should have conquered all that stuff and I'm still having to put it down I'm still having to reckon it dead I'm still having to reject it and forsake it and say "Begone, Satan with all your temptation but God says you see you don't treat it lightly but you look at that and you look at Christ and you say thank God he died for me Thank God for the blood that sealed the covenant personally with me, where God actually said, Your sins and your iniquities will I remember no more. We talk about God forgetting things, don't we? We forget our iniquities. Well, hold it. What he actually does is choose never to remember, all right? That's very powerful. You, know, you don't want people forgetting things because they might remember them again, but he remembers them no more. God deliberately puts aside any memory of the record of the sin that was mine because he sees it dealt with in perfection and in fullness in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, I will be merciful. There's nothing of works in this covenant. You understand that? It's all of mercy. Mercy provides what I could never provide. Mercy does more than that, it withholds the judgment which I deserved. Mercy is the compassionate heart of God expressed in all its fullness. And God says, I will be merciful for their iniquities, their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. It is absolutely permanent in nature. Now keep this in your mind, right? It says very plainly there, I will be to them a God. I will put my law in their minds and I will write them in their hearts. They shall know me in themselves. I will be merciful. I will remember their sins and their iniquities no more. God has laid down conditions in the new covenant that he says he will fulfill. You get that? And I defy you to find one condition in that new covenant. that, that, that you and I are asked to fulfill. This is a strange covenant. It's a covenant upon which he agrees to do it all. From him comes the mercy. He provided the sacrifice for our sins. He wrote the law of God in our hearts. He changed our minds and our thinking. He has chosen to remember us, our sins and our iniquities no more, He has made us into his people. The blessings are all ours, permanently ours. The moment we turn, or any soul turns in repentance and accepts Christ, the sacrifice and his blood that he has provided, the covenant is sealed by blood which he shed, and the covenant, it says is an eternal covenant, the power of the blood of the everlasting covenant, Hebrews 13. And I can stand there in amazement as a guilty sinner saved by grace and say, and I am his, and he is mine forever and forever. And I can stand in wonder and say, nothing shall separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus my Lord. No one shall pluck me out of his hand. No one shall pluck me out of his Father's hand. The covenant is sure, the conditions have been kept, and God himself is true to his promise. And I tell you, you'll never find God to be unfaithful to his word. Have you ever thought about all this? And it's not going to be set aside. It's not going to become obsolete. It's not going to become old. It's an eternal covenant, and it's made with you. Now next time you take that cup, think about that. And if you can't worship and give God thanks, (laughs) there's something wrong inside. You know, if you can't have a different view each time of the meaning of the death of Christ, a new appreciation, a growing sense of gratitude. This is what it means to grow in grace. You're getting to understand better the fullness of what God has provided for. And you realize the blessing that there is. You realise that you're coming here to remember him. You're thinking about him. You are remembering his death. You are coming here, as it were, getting reaffirmed and reassured as to the seal of that covenant. You're coming here and you're, you're actually getting a real blessing as a result of coming and remembering the Lord. I mean, if I was to do this in theological terms and use sort of some hefty language, we'd say the Lord's Supper was a commemorative occasion. Commemorative, all right? And then we would say, well, the Lord's Supper is a a seal. And then we would say, the Lord's Supper is a means of grace. All right, all those things have got truth in them. If by you say it's a means of grace, it's a means whereby God blesses us, that's beautiful. If you think that the emblem's got power in it to somehow or other transform us, you know, the wine is somehow a mixture of grace which... In, its, in and of itself has power when I drink it to do something to me, as of course the mass teaches it actually cleanses me from my sin, and so on and so on, then you're completely wrong. The emblems are emblems, they are symbols only. The act is an act of remembrance, and remembrance only. But the symbols as it were empower the memory in such a way they bring it so forcefully to you that the whole thing springs into what seems to be a reality and in a fresh way you remember the Lord every week and you're so grateful to God for all that he has done now that's the meaning of that it's very beautiful and the Lord Jesus said going back to Luke when he took the uh, Passover he said he was going to drink it new In the coming kingdom. Now Luke doesn't say that about the Lord's Supper. Matthew and Mark both say that the Lord Jesus said very clearly, he said he would not drink of it again, not keep it again, until he kept it in a new way. Alright? That's what it means in the coming kingdom. Well don't make the coming kingdom some future time way ahead of whatever dispensation you like to put it in because that's foolishness quite frankly Uh, he's drinking it with us now and I want us to understand further this morning that we're actually coming to the Lord's table and I want you to see that this is the way in which he actually eats and drinks with us in a new way before he died he could only tell them what it meant show them the symbols And the night of his betrayal, he did it looking forward to the agonies of the cross, the moanings and depths of Gethsemane, the darkness and the horror of Calvary, the coldness and finality of the grave. He looked forward to all of that. Now we keep it, it's all in a new way. He's no longer one who is going to die, he says. Behold, he says, I live and I was dead and I am alive forevermore. He's no longer explaining to a little group of disciples who are so confused about it all that they can't grasp what he's saying, what his sufferings and resurrection will mean. He has demonstrated the fullness of the meaning of the symbols by the fact of his own death, his sufferings, his death, his burial, his resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of the throne of God and the kingdom has come. And we gather to remember the Lord and we suddenly say, wait a minute, it's the Lord's table. He provided what those symbols meant. He actually instituted the use of those symbols. He spread it first, right? Right? And he gave meaning to the symbols and showed what they meant. Everything of blessing that's on that table, everything of joy that's on that table, everything of feasting that's on that table was provided by the Lord. It's the Lord's table. And you see, he's not absent from us as we eat and drink. It's not you and me eating and drinking together and saying, Lord, where are you? He's right there, it says, in the midst. He makes his presence felt and real as we follow through the meaning and contemplate on the meaning of the symbols. No, 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 I'm not saying the bread becomes the host and the wine becomes the body of Christ. Nothing so stupid as that, but you know what I mean. As you lift your own heart up and worship to the Lord, where is he? He's right there, isn't he? He's right there. And it's very beautiful when, you know, you just ponder quietly remembering the Lord, and you just got a sense that He's right there. And it's as though, may I speak reverently? He hands you the symbol, and He just says, My body given for you, my blood shed for you, the new covenant made with you. What a table! Does he not joy to see his people rejoicing and worshipping and giving thanks and praising him for the meaning of his death? Isn't he there, present as it were, eating and drinking with us? It is the Lord's table. You see, the idea of the table, you think about it. What does the psalmist say? Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemy, my cup runs over. So there he is in all the hostilities of life And being David pursued for his very life by all his enemies and fighting and battling through the burden of the day. But then there's that lovely time, he says, when there's a table spread for me in the presence of my enemies. Is it where the Lord makes himself known to him and feeds him and nourishes him? Now that was what the psalmist proved in his day. And then you've got the idea in Revelation where the Lord Jesus says to that church that's so cold in heart, Look, if any man will open the door, I'll come in with him, and I'll eat with him. I will sup with him. I'll spread a table that will nourish his soul in the darkness of the Laodicean church and the coldness of his people. I will warm his heart with my presence. I will feed his soul with myself and with my word. So the idea of a table, you see, is feasting, it's fellowship. And so it is exactly the same here this morning. The bread which we break, 1 Corinthians 10. Is it not the communion of the body of Christ? And the cup which we drink, is it not the communion of the death or the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ? And what you have in 1 Corinthians 10 is the fact that when we're at the table, we are actually at his table, number one, and... Also, we are there with him. That's the whole point of it. Let me just find the chapter again. Chapter 10 and verse, and it says that in the verses that we've read together. We are having fellowship with him. Now that's why he says in verse 21, don't you go away from the Lord's table and you drink the cup of the Lord on the one hand, then you go and drink the cup of demons. You can't be partakers of the Lord's table and the table of devils. See, they were having a trouble with idol worship and eating idol foods. And, you know, people sit down and they're having fellowship in that which is evil. All right. Whereas we, as it were, sit down with the Lord personally or more particularly, in this case, more especially at the Lord's Supper. And we are having fellowship with the Lord and we're professing our allegiance to him. Our love for Him, our desires after Him. So we can't go away from that and then go and sit down at the devil's table, a table of demons, idol table, and saying, "Well, I'm part of that idol, and I'm worshiping that idol, and I'm interested in going after that idol." Now apply that principle to your life. All right? We swore, as it were, I put it carefully, our allegiance to the Lord by what we did here, our gratitude to God for what we said here. Well, you can't go away, can you? And start eating at the table of demons and feasting and satisfying your soul and having fellowship on that, which is absolutely contrary to the truths of Christianity. We have to draw the line today, fellow Christians. There's stuff we have got to learn, and we will have to learn more, that we can not touch. And it's all part of the teaching of being at the Lord's table. Do you see the fullness of what we've done? We've done it for years so many times, and we? And don't you find, feel ashamed of yourself sometimes? You did it so lightly, didn't you? So a bit casually. Oh, it wasn't you didn't appreciate. But look at the wonders when you turn the scripture over. And turn the scripture over. And look more closely at the words of what, uh, that are used. And see how much they mean. Please read scripture thoughtfully carefully, prayerfully, don't rest until you've really understood the fullness of what's contained in it. What is it Francis Ridley Haberdal used to say? Suck all the honey out of a verse before you stop and go on to the next one. It's very true, it's very rich. And so you see you're having fellowship with him at the table and it also means we're having fellowship with one another because he said we're all eating of the same bread. Right? We're all committed together in the action. But also, we also represent one body, don't we? So he says, now look at Corinth. You people have been scrapping with one another rather badly. You have. You've been preferring this preacher against that preacher and you followed this man instead of that man. He said, well, hold it. You're at the table where there's fellowship. You're having fellowship with the Lord and you're having fellowship with one another. So he says in verse 24, let no man seek his own in other words, don't be selfish and pursue your own interests, but every man seek another's wealth or well being. So we become a body of believers who are interested in the welfare of each other at the detriment of our own comfort to the point of causing discomfort, and we are the ones who make the sacrifice so that we are seeking because we are seeking the welfare of the other. So it's a table of fellowship with the Lord it's a table of fellowship with one another and it's also a table of blessing. What do I need to say any more than that? An absolute table of blessing the cup of blessing which we bless. I will end with this one last section to bring out something more of the fullness and then we'll move on to the upper room next time 1 Corinthians 11 because there's two or three things here need to be said. I'm going to say them, all right, from the scripture. 1 Corinthians 11, we read it all the time in verse 23, I received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. We know that, we've seen that. When he had given thanks, and we've wondered at that, we've really wondered that he gave thanks for what that represented. he broke it, said, take ye, this is my body which is broken for you. See, it's there again. This too, in remembrance of me. Now, I'd like you to just notice it doesn't say in remembrance of my death. Of course it means that. But it seems to mean even more than that. When we're here, we're just thinking, well, we thought of the birth this morning, didn't we? So, I must, 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 must think about that on a Sunday morning. We're thinking about his death. No, it's remembrance of me. There's real richness in that. There's real variety in that. That caters for each individual's understanding and appreciation of where we're at in our own particular journey, Christian journey. Whether it be in a, a mountain or in a valley, you just think about the Lord, and you will sort of you have thoughts that are different and appropriate to the time. Then finalizing on the meaning of His death and the blessing that's come from it. So He says, "Do this in remembrance of Me." And the, after the manner, He took the cup, He supped. Cup is the New Testament in My blood. We've done that. This do in remembrance of Me. As ye drink it, in remembrance of me, for as often as ye eat this bread, drink this cup, ye do show forth the Lord's death. In other words, every time we actually do it, we are declaring a fact, publicly declaring a fact. People can come through that door and say, whatever are they doing? They can look through the windows and they say, What, whatever are they doing? They are, there are people in there, They're actually telling the world that the Lord Jesus Christ did actually die and he died for sinners. That's That's what we're doing. We're declaring it as a fact of history. A fact, a reality which has present meaning. One of the most incredible things about the Dark Ages, you think about this, the Dark Ages when the Gospel wasn't preached, all right, when the cross of Christ and the meaning of the death of Christ for sinners was not declared from the pulpits in the land literally for centuries. But you know what did go on for centuries? the sacraments, the Lord's Supper. So God had his own way of declaring truth anyway. Remarkable that. When there was no voice declaring the meaning of the death of Christ, actually the various rituals they went through whatever fault they had, I'm not into that. I'm making the point that God ordained that this would be a declaration of the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ died for sinners. But it's more than that. As we do it, we're not just declaring the fact of it we are actually declaring we, we believe in the fact of it that it happened and we believe in the meaning of it. He died for me, makes me take the peace and put it into my own mouth and I have fellowship in that suffering. I am declaring it was for me. So it's a great witness, a great witness. And I brought, that verse brings it out. We're showing the Lord's death and it'll only be till he come. So if you think eating and drinking in the kingdom, eh, the coming kingdom is a day after he's come, you've, you've got it all fracked bunt, you know? Upside down and downside up. It's now. And we do it till he comes. Why will we stop when he's come? Because it'll all be fulfilled. It'll be in the reality. We, we will not just the Lord's presence we'll be looking for as we sit and ponder. We'll see him face to face. We'll see him face to face face. And then in verses 27 to 28, it tells us how we should eat it. it. tells us what we were doing, the meaning of it, the declaration, but just verses 27 28. Who therefore shall eat this bread? This tells us how we should do it. And drink this cup of the Lord in an unworthy fashion. That's what that means. Shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. That's very serious. But he says, but let a man examine himself. Then let him eat of the bread and drink of that cup. Right? So there's an order here. You examine yourself to see if there is that in you that makes, you, makes what you're saying, that you love the Lord and remember him and believe in his death, make it a hypocrisy, really. Make it hypocritical. Because in your life, there is sin unconfessed. There is sin unforsaken. Because if you deliberately continue in a life that's dark and evil and then pretend to be so godly and spiritual and remember the Lord at the Lord's table and pretend that all is well and this is what you believe, the Lord is saying here, you are eating and drinking judgment. You're doing it in an unworthy fashion. And he's saying the point is not that you should stop and not do it, but you should put the thing right first so that you then can go on and do it. And you are looking for sin unconfessed, sin unforsaken, the indulgence in the unholy and the unclean, the table of demons. You confess it, you forsake it, and then you eat. And in verse 30, if not, he says you eat unworthily, You eat and drink damnation or judgment to yourself not discerning the Lord's body. In other words you haven't got a clue what you're really doing. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you and many sleep. Now that's that's terrible. If we judge ourselves we won't fall into that judgment. This is literally what happened at Corinth. The Lord came in with illness and the Lord came in with actual death because of their indulgences in demonic things mixing it with Christianity unclean lives it does us well to think but when we're judged we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world so that God puts his hand upon the believer who does not forsake sin and who pretends as hypocrites that all is well the point is this who should eat then of this table well firstly Christians that's the first thing if a person who's not a Christian eats it well they're really eating and drinking judgment. They're not really understanding what it's all about. That's the one. The other person who should not eat at this table is a Christian with unconfessed, unforsaken, ongoing sin in their life. All right. That's what it's teaching. It's not me saying this. You come here ready, prepared to remember with sin, whatever it is in the week, whatever it is in the day, that the Lord's shown you, you've confessed it. And you never come to the Lord's table without having first examined yourself. And I remember when I was just a boy of 10, 12, we always knew. You went out to remember the Lord, you shut your door, you got down on your knees, and you asked the Lord to show you, is there anything that I need to put right? Or if you had something on your conscience, you put it right. See, we forget all this. We're very casual today about sin very casual today about the way we practice our faith but literally i say never go to the lord's table without examining yourself number one and never come to the lord's table empty what do i mean these were the two vice bits of advice that i used to get have it in my head son have you got something to offer to the lord this morning you know you're only 10 or 12 you're sort of oh it's good yeah it was good teaching good training I mean, you come here. Do you remember when the children of Israel went to appear at the feast before the Lord? Do you know what the Lord said? None shall come before me empty. In other words, you're coming to meet me in my presence, bring a sacrifice. You just come along, as it were, with a little basket. And in your basket, you've got your sacrifice, your thank offering. You know, is there something you you especially got in your heart to give the Lord thanks for? You bring it along in the presence of the Lord, gratitude. You bring your sacrifice, some new thought you've had about the Lord. Some new experience of his mercy and his grace to you in the week, his provision for you. You know, you've got a grateful heart and you gather and you're not empty. You're full of thanksgiving. You see that? So you come having examined yourself and you come and you never come empty. Because I tell you, if you come full, you'll go away, can I say, fuller. This is how you get the blessing out of the remembrance feast. This is how you get the blessing. And so, when someone says, look, I will not come to the Lord's Supper, or I won't remember the Lord, they are actually saying publicly, I am not a Christian. Or they are saying publicly, I am a Christian, but there is sin in my life, unconfessed, sin in my life, unforsaken, sin in my life that's ongoing, and for me to eat would bring God's judgment down on me. That's what you're saying when you declare in public that you won't remember the Lord if you're a Christian. However, sometimes there's some, there is a sad misunderstanding. And this has been present in the Christian church for, for a long time. Where people would come to remember the Lord and they'd have such a sense of their own unworthiness. That's a good feeling to have in today's world, you know, where we're so full of ourselves. Such a deep sense of their own unworthiness that they would feel they just couldn't possibly be good enough to go and remember their Lord and you read, you read in history long, long stories of this the trouble is in some circles that grew to be a mark of godliness where, oh that man has never come to the Lord's table for five years, he feels so unworthy he's such a godly man no he's not, he's an ignorant man he doesn't understand his acceptance, his righteousness is because of the Lord Jesus Christ and he doesn't understand That sin has been taken away. Condemnation has been removed. Guilt has been borne by another. Judgment has been borne. Penalties being paid. He's in Christ. He doesn't understand that his filthy garment like the prodigal son from the pig pen of sin and the morass of his own evil has been taken from him and the best robe of Christ's righteousness has been put on him and God looks at him and he says look all I can see in you is my son and he actually accepts you as he accepts him can you believe that because you're sinned in your iniquities, you're remembered no more And he looks upon you as he looks upon Christ. And he's saying, this is incredible. Fellow Christians, to the truth of the Bible, take it away with you this morning and go on your way rejoicing and say, it's true, the cup of blessing, which we bless. The table is a table of fellowship, of the Lord's presence. It's a place of feasting. It's a place of blessing. It's a place of joy. It's a place of remembrance, gratitude, worship, and thanksgiving. May we all be blessed this morning pray and so Lord we just close this morning with a sense of gratitude again what more can we say so greater things the Lord has done for us so greater provisions been made for us so much help is available to us even as we've gathered this morning we give thanks to God for his unspeakable gift and pray that the blessings of the Lord might be ours Pray, our God and Father, that the love of God might fill our hearts. The communion of the Holy Spirit might be our joy and blessing through the week so that the Lord's presence is continuously made real to us and the table provided is spread before us and that we may know what it means, that the grace of God, bringing with it salvation for all men, has appeared and gives us strength for every day. So we bless thee in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.